Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. About the time uh, I entered middle school, one of my friends had introduced me to a book series called Redwall. Uh, that was written by an Englishman named Brian Jakes. And Redwall was set around this old medieval English-style abbey uh, that was the home of noble mice and squirrels, moles, otters, and the occasional hare. And often, Redwall was, Redwall was always under attack um, from the nefarious foxes and weasels, rats, and stoats, which, for the first time I learned last night, a stoat is a smaller, angrier weasel. Kind of. Um, And so, in all honesty, though, that was what happened in every single book. Redwall was always under siege. However, the stories of Redwall were always epic. They were heroic and hilarious, even at times a bit tragic. I'm pretty sure the sixth book of the series was the first book to ever make me cry. Um, And yes, it was because a mouse died. It It was tragic. Um, But also, in every single book, besides being under attack, there's always this epic feast that you would look forward to. And the author would go into great detail about all the sumptuous dishes served at this feast, and it's usually outside, out on the pastoral redwall lawn. And so important was this idea of feasting to the novels that one writer described the series as being about charming woodland characters, their adventures, and everything they ate along the way. And here's a taste, pun intended. It says, dishes went this way and that from paw to paw, because they're rodents, snow cream pudding, hot fruit pies, colorful trifles, tasty pastries, steaming soup, new bread with shiny golden crusts. Old cheeses studded with dandelion, acorn, and celery. Sugared plums and honeyed pears vied for place with winter salads and vegetable flans. Now, I don't know what all those things are. I'm going to confess that. But they all sound amazing. And those chapters alone would make me want to live at Redwall Abbey. Yes, in part because the food, the food sounds delightful. But also because the feasts of Redwall were full of laughter and shenanigans and friendship. They showed a community that valued camaraderie and humor, the pursuit of good, and as that same writer said, the meditation on what makes life delicious. Redwall taught me that every good story needs a grand old feast. And that celebration is an important window into who we are, both woodland creature or human. Now, like Redwall, Mark will use feasts to draw us into the life of a person and a community. And in Mark chapter 6, where we're going to be this morning, we encounter two feasts. And in these two feasts, two kingdoms and two kings. And through them, Mark confronts us with some questions. Where will we feast? Right? What king will we follow? Which kingdom will we seek? And before we go any further, I'm going to pray for us one more time. Father, thank you again for your word that we can gather together, uh, that you continue to speak through us and to us today. Uh, please help us to, to recognize your voice and hear your message. Um, and please use me as well. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this week in our same page summer series, we began the book of Mark. And if you've been reading along, you've probably recognized that Mark is a different beast than Matthew, um, just as an aardvark is different than an anteater, or as a weasel is different than a stoat, which I now know. The basic question that Mark presents us is, who is Jesus? Right, so we hear his teachings, we see his miracles, and we begin to wonder that maybe, just maybe, this man might be more than just a man. And like the people who encounter Jesus, we still find him to be a mystery, even though, he, um, even though Mark pointedly tells us at the beginning how this is all going to end. And so by the time we get to Mark 6, Jesus has already healed tons of people. He's gotten in conflict with the religious leaders of his day. He's taught parables, and he's freed people from demons, even. And now he's recruited several people to be his disciples or his apprentices. And whatever he's doing seems to be building. And his message through this is simple. Right? The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. So repent and believe the good news. So in Mark 6, and it's two feasts now, we come across something called, and this is not a joke, and neither was it an intended pun, but we come to something called a Markin sandwich. Because every so often, Mark is going to start talking about something, put it on pause, talk about something else, and then come back and finish the original story. And Mark's not being a spaz, though. He's doing that on purpose. Instead, he's using what seems to be like a side note to actually help us interpret that original story. Now, this particular sandwich starts in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. All right, so now Jesus is beginning to expand his movement. So while he had been traveling around Galilee or northern Israel, himself teaching and healing and chucking out demons, now he commissions his 12 closest followers to carry his message further. So things are taking off. And if Jesus is truly the king, as Mark is hinting at, that he is truly the Messiah, the Son of God, then we need to be asking ourselves, what kind of kingdom is he bringing? Is Jesus going to be like the other kings of his day? Is his kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, going to be the same as the kingdoms of earth? I think it's with these ideas and questions in mind that Mark then brings us to the next part of our sandwich, and our first feast, picking back up in 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard this, he was greatly, or when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. All right, so now Mark brings in another person, right? This King Herod. Now, this is not the baby murdering Herod of Christmas. That was the so-called Herod the Great, and this is instead one of his sons, Herod Antipas. Now, for a bit of a backstory, Herod the Great was, we will kindly say, a psychopath. Um, because he thought everything was a conspiracy against him. And so while he did some great things, like expand the Jewish temple, uh, he also had no qualms about murdering anyone, including his own children, in cold blood, if he just woke up that morning and thought they might be plotting against him. Emperor Augustus even said once that it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son, because at least Herod, being Jewish, would not eat his pig. So, after Herod the Great dies, Rome decides that it's probably best to limit the power of crazy Herod's family. And so instead, his kingdom is split up into four territories ruled by tetrarchs, not kings, and they don't have the power of kings. And so Antipas is actually the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. However, this always bothered Antipas, and he actually petitioned the Roman emperor to be crowned king, but was denied. So, Mark calling this man king is a bit of pointed irony. Right? It's not a mistake. In fact, he's trying to set up something in our minds. right? Because remember, the sandwich starts out talking about Jesus, building his movement, who's supposed to be the true king. And now Mark introduces us to a man who is a so-called king, who's desperate to be king, but actually isn't. Antipas was a bit of a pariah with the Jewish people. Um, first, because when he decided to build his capital, he decided to build it on a Jewish graveyard, which did not go over well and made sure no good Jew could ever enter his city. But then he caused another cultural stir when around 60 he had an affair with his sister-in-law, Herodias, who was the wife of his half-brother Herod Philip I, um, and Herodias, who was about 40 at the time, also happened to be his niece. And being gross was just kind of the trademark of the Herods. Now, Herodias was an extraordinarily ambitious woman. And when she recognized that there was a path to greater power through Antipas, she seduced him into an affair and then convinced him to divorce his current wife, who was the princess of the Nabataeans, who were the neighbors, and then to marry her instead. Now, this does not go over well with said princess of the Nabataeans, as we'll see. But what was also shocking in all of this was that Herodias actually had a young daughter with Philip named Salome. And when she renounced Philip, she actually took her daughter from him and made her come and live with her and Antipas. 
So what Herod and Ant, or sorry, Antipas and Herodias did was adulterous, according to the Mosaic law, clearly. And that's what John the Baptist is going after. So fearing that John's preaching might actually lead to rebellion, because it goes against the Mosaic law, and also cause further problems with the Nabataeans, who uh, was his ex-wife, Antipas decides to imprison John. But this isn't enough for Herodias, because John's in the way of her ambition, and she wants him dead. But despite being at odds with John, Antipas actually seems to kind of like him. And so he tries to thwart his murderous wife by keeping John in prison where he thinks Herodias can't get to him. Well, we'll see how that goes. Continuing on in verse 21. It says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now on the outset, right, this, this feast, this banquet looks like the place to be. It's a grand party celebrating the birthday of the ruler. All the important people are there, the government officials, military officers, the nobles. Like if you wanted to go and make connections and get higher in life, that's where you should be. And yet Herod's feast would also have had a spread of food cooked by the finest chefs. And he would have had drinks brought from the finest cellars. And of course, he would have had the most exciting of entertainment. But as the party wore on, The shining glamour of the outside of Herod's feast gave way to drunken fools lusting over a princess and binding themselves to murder. Because once Herod and his guests were well sodden with wine, Herodias enacted her plan. And my guess is, as was common for that type of party in that day, exotic dancers would have been hired for the party, and they usually did more than dance by the end, we'll say. But in place of those, near the end, as Antipas is getting more and more drunk, Herodias, instead of sending out another dancer, sends out her own daughter, the princess, to the delight of Antipas and his crowd. The dance itself would not have been anything new, especially for that group of men. But what was particularly exciting was that it was the young princess who danced. Because Herodias had probably noticed Antipas's interest in her daughter. And instead of protecting her, instead of caring for her and guiding her, she saw a way to instead use her and manipulate a lecherous old man to get what she most deeply desired. Right? The murder of an innocent and good man. So Antipas, drunk, aroused by his daughter-in-law, 
makes a foolish oath, promising her half his non-existent kingdom to reward her for her dance. She goes back to her mother, is told to ask for John the Baptist's head, and returns with relish to demand the head on one of the platters as, it, as though it's a dish served with the rest of the meal. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples earlier in the sandwich, they proclaimed a simple message, repent. And right away, we come to the story of a man who finds himself in the midst of a terrible decision and yet is unable to do that one crucial thing. And so instead of repenting, Herod Antipas fears looking bad in front of his guests, is insecure about his power, worries about the appearance of his rule, and orders John executed and has his head brought into the feast on a serving train. Now, it's clear that Herod felt guilty about what he'd done, not only in the moment, but afterwards, because when he begins hearing about Jesus, his first assumption is that John the Baptist has returned from the dead to get him. And ironically, Herod would actually never be able to forget John, because several years later, in AD 36, his wife's people, or his ex-wife's people, the Nabataeans, decide now it's time to avenge her honor and invade the country. And they deliver to Antipas a stunningly bad defeat in battle. And everyone interprets this as God's judgment on him for the murder of John. And then things just continued to go down here for him. Herodias' ambition spilled a little bit too far when she again convinced Antipas to press the Roman emperor to be crowned king, while at the same time plotting not one but two different plots of treason against that same emperor. Being found out, Antipas and Herodias are exiled to Gaul, which is the, the furthest west end of the empire, and there he dies in AD 39. And so that ends the story of King Herod Antipas. So with that whole story in mind now, Mark wants to bring us back to Jesus and to finish the sandwich. Right? The disciples whom he had sent out to carry his message have returned. They're excited by what they saw and did and taught, but they're also exhausted. Picking up in, in verse 30. says, The apostles... Uh, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to them, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. 
Mark now introduces us to a very different feast. All right, we find Jesus and his disciples tired and hungry, just looking for some time to themselves so they might rest and eat. And Jesus gets in the boat and leaves to find a desolate place, not with the officials of the land or its officers or the nobles, but a ragtag bunch of men, not to be celebrated by them, but to instead offer them rest. But when they get to that place, Jesus finds that a great crowd of people had raced on ahead and are waiting for him. They're desperate, they're needy, they're hungry, they're poor, and they're troubled. They're like sheep that don't have a shepherd because their rulers have neglected them. And if I was Jesus and his disciples coming into shore, seeing that crowd, I'd probably want to shoo them off. I'm tired, I'm hungry, I need some space, I want to be alone, go home. But Jesus is different because instead he loves them. Instead, he pushes through his weariness and teaches them, though they're unwanted by all else. Instead of leaving them on their own and in chaos and worry and need, he organizes and feeds them, though they have nothing to offer him but their need. But the feast of Jesus seems poor. The food is simple, just common bread and and fish, and far too few at that. The company is no better. It's a bunch of beggars and their families. The entertainment seems lousy. It's a tired guy teaching them with help from a ragged band of stubborn ex-fishermen, zealots, and traders. And yet, something happens. Something incredible takes place in that lonely, desperate wilderness. Because we find Jesus is the true king. And his kingdom encompasses all creation. And so he takes those five loaves and those two fish, that little amount that he's offered, and he's able to satisfy all who come. He provides a feast that leaves people full, that leaves them feeling cared for and hopeful, and a God who actually loves them, and a God who will accept all to his feast. So two feasts. Two kings, two kingdoms. For all of its glamour, Herod's feast shows a kingdom dead and rotten. It's a kingdom filled by lust and foolishness, greed, manipulation, murder, and the thirst for power, but one that's ultimately powerless. It shows a king controlled by his lusts and a slave to them. A king who's incapable of repenting and being humble and being incapable, he consents to the gruesome death of a man he knows is both right and innocent and one whom he respects. But Herod and Herodias and their feasts is not just a display of the ancient world. If their lives were turned into a series today, I'm, I'm sure it would win awards for storytelling. Right, because it's about ambition and betrayal, and it pushes boundaries in all directions. It's violent and erotic. And it's all those things that, that entertain us still today. I think because it's a reflection of our world, both then and now. That Herod and Herodias and their feast is a picture of the inward bent of our brokenness. That's where we find ourselves whenever we leave the upside-down kingdom of Jesus and abandon its ways and instead seek the pleasures of comfort and power instead. That's the feast of Herod and his kingdom and his title. And that still is the ways of this 
the kingdoms of this world today. But what of Jesus? Right, in Mark 6, we find a king who gives himself for others, right, who places their needs above his own, who loves all who come to him, even if they weren't invited along. And we find a king who's capable of satisfying every need, and a king who even has an abundance left over. And that's not all, because there's a lot more going on in this sandwich, um, a lot more than we have time for today. Allusions to the old stories of Elijah and his conflict with Ahab and Jezebel, of Xerxes and Esther, even parallels with Moses and Israel in the wilderness eating manna. Yet in Mark 6, there's one more important comparison for us today, and that's between John the Baptist and Jesus, two prophets. John's journey as a prophet foreshadows Jesus' own. Right? Just as John met his end by the twisted ways of the kingdoms of this world, so too is Jesus going to be betrayed, arrested, abused, and executed by those kingdoms. And yet this journey is one Jesus knows. And it's one he's preparing himself for and trying to prepare his disciples for. And it's a journey that he ultimately submits to. Because that is the way of the upside-down king. Because Jesus knows that in submitting to the shameful death on a cross, he can save us. That through dying himself as the innocent son of God, he might offer forgiveness for all of us. That just as he poured himself out for the crowds that found him weary in the wilderness, that he can pour himself out to the fullest for all of us humans who are lost in the darkness of this world even to the point of finding himself dead and alone in a tomb. And yet something happens. Something incredible takes place in that lonely garden on Easter morning. Because Jesus is the true king, and his kingdom encompasses both life and death. And so Jesus is raised from the dead, And he promises to share his life with all who come to him, all who repent and turn and receive forgiveness. And just as he did with those crowds in that wilderness, Jesus turns none away. And now he prepares for us another feast, one foreseen long, long ago by a prophet called Isaiah. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Not this feast, right, in the greatest of twists, Death, our gravest enemy who has devoured us from the very beginning of our history, will instead be swallowed up. At the feast of Jesus, death itself is going to be served on a platter. And the people of God will be forever freed from its tyranny so that we might be fully satisfied and know the fullest of joy and find the truest of rest. Isaiah goes on to say, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. 
We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So my question for us this morning is will you feast with Jesus? Right? Will you follow him and seek the ways of his kingdom, though they be upside down? Or will you follow the ways of Herod and Herodias and the ways of this world? Sometimes that choice isn't always clear. Right? It's easy to choose the storied feasts of Redwall Abbey and its noble band of mice and otters over the evil parties of the rats and weasels. But life is often more confusing than that. Because often the appearance of Herod's feast is way more appealing than the humility of Jesus' own. And yet picture with me, if you will, those people as they left the parties of Jesus and Herod. One group left unsettled, ashamed, disgusted by their powerless ruler. And yet the other came away satisfied both in body and soul because they had encountered the true king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, that you love us, that you love us so much that you sent Jesus, your son, to die for us, that we might know your forgiveness, that we might experience your love, that we might also be called children you love. Help us to recognize your presence. Help us to hear your invitation to your feast. Help us to seek you. I pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.